Bonasue, um, everyone. I am Marik Moan, and um, this is my only Creole that you're going to hear from me, and then I'm going to keep it in a language that I master. Say, moi-même malade, mais moi remenete. Say, comme ça, moi la fait ou remen eti et ou malade aussi. <laughs> I said that. I'm sick, but I love Haiti, um, so that's why I'm here, so that you will also be lovesick for Haiti by the end. Um, so I am an um, assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, and I have recently um, been involved in uh, working in Haiti since 2009. Uh, um, educating nurses to provide HIV care mostly, and most recently um, working with doctors and nurses to um, uh, make infectious diseases and, and trauma care experts um, after them, kind of meeting pre- and post-earthquake um, needs. But I'm not an expert on Haiti, so I was very honored um, to be chosen to present the authors who are here tonight because I have been a longtime follower of things Haitian and literary, but um, I'm a novice into um, things Haiti in terms of uh, people that might have had the op option to present, so thank you to um, the Pratt for choosing me. The first author, Katya Lucy, was born in Haiti, and her stories have appeared in numerous literary journals in the United States and the Caribbean. She's a graduate of the College of Notre Dame of Maryland, and she lives in Maryland with her husband and daughter. Um, and I love what she says, which I discovered on her blog, that she works to build bridges to shorten the cultural distance for children whose parents come from other countries. And in the spare time, she writes... Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So some of our works um, include the Caribbean Writer, or um, fictional essays have been published in the Caribbean Writer, Phoebe, Puy, Macomer, Waba Baguet, Calabash, Peregrine, as well as the anthologies Brassage, an anthology of poems by Haitian women, edited by Claudine uh, Michel et al., and Butterfly's Way, Voices from the Haitian Diaspora in Soho Press in 2001, and Hedy Noir by Acacia Books, which um, she will read from today. Um, uh, uh, I think the story that um, uh, Ms. Ulysses will read from uh, represents the struggles of many uh, Haitian families, um, including one of my best friends um, from Haiti right now, whose mother is Kite uh, Melema. She's uh, totally confused, actually, and has been brought to New York uh, by her family. Not to give away the plot, but it, it, it's a uh, struggle that I think a lot of um, immigrant families uh, go through, and I really um, enjoyed how Miss um, uh, Ulysses captured it. And I hope that uh, she will share some of her story with us today. Thank you. Well, before I start my story called, uh, what's the name of my story? Um, the Last Department, right? Before I start that story, I have to give you a little background on a little island, not Haiti, right? Little island, New York. So whenever I do this, I have to think of Lena Horn because I love Lena Horn, so I have to do my Lena Horn thing. Listen. There's a little island on the Hudson. Mythical, magic, and fair. My daughter's singing along. Shining like a diamond on the Hudson. Everyone is a millionaire. Life is easy. I teach this to my kids at school. Living's lazy on this little isle where dreams come true. And all you do is if you've ever been to the big city, you know all you have to do to make it is show up, right? So you get off the bus, the boat, or the airplane, the train, whatever, and you show up and poof, like magic, wonderful things begin to happen to you, right, Eisen? Yeah, yeah? I mean, it happens in New York all the time, and this happened for my character in the story, The Last Department. She was doing so well that she decided to share some of her wealth and did some things that she probably should not have done, but she did it. 
you know, thinking that New York soil is so much more mm, rich and developed than Haiti. So she does this thing that she should not have done, and soon she begins to hear another song. So if you speak Creole and you know this, so sing with me. My reading will be like 10 minutes, so I got to get my singing out of the way. Lati bonito, yo voy elemue, yo dim sole mala. Lati bonito, yo voy elemue, yo dim sole mala. It's about somebody dying. That's like a warning song, right? Lati bonito, they've called me and, you know the song? And they've told me that, um, Somebody's dying and it's very bad. So this is kind of how we got to the last department. And uh, now I'm going to put on, take off the Lino Horn hat and put on the reader. The reader, and I hope you enjoy the story. Again, the last department, page two two three. The last department. The languorous drone in Fufun's ear meant that her international call had gone through. She'd been on the phone with relative for hours, explaining through scalding tears how she came home after work and found her elderly mother dead. Her message was met with enough sympathy. Fufun and her mother had lived together for years. She would miss her more than most. But wedged between everyone's words of condolence, however, was relief and blame. See, Dona Gumama Malbranche had been as happy as a prisoner in solitary confinement. Every morning, Fufun left for work. After Fufun left for work, Gumama would take her place before the television to chat with the strangers who lived inside. I wish I could sprout wings and fly back home, she often confided to Bob Barker, you know, host of The Price is Right. When the showcase showdown ended and the last prizes were distributed, Guamama would turn off the television and sit for hours in silence until 4 o'clock. Her most trusted friend and confidant, Oprah, would nod knowingly each time Guamama explained how Fufun had kidnapped her from her home and was forcing her to live in the worst kind of exile. When all her television friends were gone for the day, Gumama would sit and stare at the wallpaper, imagining the distant place that used to be home and the freedom that had been hers to do whatever and go wherever she pleased. A map of Preblen's nameless alleyways was imprinted in her memory as clearly as the lines in the palms of her hands. Sitting in a chair thousands of miles from home, she went for long walks along Route des Frères, Visiting with friends for hours, being trapped inside an apartment day after day, week after week, you know it's coming, month after month, and year after year was torture. She missed the roosters announcing the dawn, the ominous lights flickering from Boutillier and Montcarville. Well, you're hardly a prisoner in exile, Fufun would tell her mother when she complained. Sure, Gumama got to dress up once in a while for a wedding or a funeral, but being taken out of the apartment only for special occasions made her feel like a clown, a madigra malmasqué. When Fufun came home from work at night, she was always too tired to do anything but sleep, too tired to ask Gumama how she'd spent her day. Gumama would want to talk about her garden back home, her house, her friends who sold real masquetti behind the cemetery and fried food to the taxi drivers waiting to ferry passengers to the end of the road just beyond Hotel Fomboyant. In the States, Gomama had rain, sleet, illnesses she'd never even heard of. She didn't want to talk about those. She had changed and hated the person into whom America had turned her. Once, when Fufun was at work, Gumama unlocked the door and escaped. She wandered into the unfamiliar streets, improperly dressed for the snow that reached her ankles. She turned a corner, then another, then another. Soon, she could not find her way back. Hours later, a good Samaritan found her shivering and dazed. What's your name? 
and where do you live? The good Samaritan had asked, but all that was just too much English for Gomama. It was just too much English for her to understand. He took her to a nearby hospital. Fufun spent an entire day trying to locate her mother that time. She prevented a recurrence by having a sturdier lock installed. Kumama tried but could not get out of the apartment without a key, forcing her to retreat further into the wallpaper in the television world. But even that had changed. As you guys know, Bob Barker was no longer a resident. Just when she had gotten used to him, a stranger came and took his place. Even Oprah was not the same. She spoke only in tongues now. She'd become distant and unfriendly, prompting Gomama to try and smash the screen with a mop, spraining her frail wrist. When Fufun came home and found her mother hitting the television screen, she covered it like a corpse, saying, the TV people won't be able to hurt you anymore. I'll stop right here. Thank you. I think at the end of both readings, we'll have um, time for questions. Um, Madison Spartbell uh, was born and raised in Tennessee, and he's lived in New York and London and lives in Baltimore now. He attended Princeton and um, also Holland's College and has taught in various creative writing programs, including the Iowa Writers Workshop, Johns Hopkins University Writing Seminars, and since 1984 in the Goucher College Creative Program. Um, I first, or not first, but one of the earlier times I'd met uh, Madison, I was just preparing to leave to Haiti. And I'd spent a number of years uh, in Africa, and I, in Francophone Africa, I master French pretty well. And I thought, Haiti, Africa, really, how different can it be? Now, it is the only nation that has been independent, black-run ever, and also um, had, had a slave-run, uh, slave uh, rebellion uh, led by um, the winners of the slave rebellion, but um, still, you know, I, really, how much different could that be? I, I, I mastered French, I know some Spanish, Creole, that should just come like, a, you know, I should be able to master that in a matter of no days. So he, he launches into four paragraphs of, of fluent Creole and looks to me for a response, and then I started to get rattled. And um, by the time I got to Haiti um, and spent just a bit of time there, I soon realized that I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into and um, proceeded to tour the country, uh, three-fourths of the island in, in a matter of weeks, and... Um, became increasingly uh, lost but increasingly intrigued, and then came back, and I started to look into more of Madison's works. Uh, he's the author of 13 novels, including a number of them, which I'm not going to recite, um, but his eighth novel, Also Rising, was a finalist for the 1995 National Book Award and the 1996 Penn Faulkner Award, and winner of the 1996 Annisfeld Wolf Award for the best book of the year dealing with matters of race. Also, Rising, along with the second and third novels of the Haitian Revolutionary Trilogy, Master of the Crossroads, and The Stone That the Builder Refused, is available in uniform edition from Vintage Contemporaries. Toussaint Louverture, a biography, was published. Uh, by Pantheon in 2007, and Devil's Dream, a novel based on the career of Confederate Calvary General Nathan Bedford Forrest, was published by Pantheon in 2009. And now his latest novel, um, The Color of Night, will appear uh, from Vintage Contemporaries in April um, of this year. Um, the story that uh, Madison will uh, share from Haiti Noir today uh, captures what, if I think, are kind of essence of three prototypes to be found in Haiti, the blanc, the noir, and one trying to bridge in between and all of the different types of magie that surround all of them. So, Madison. Well, thank you. I'm going to read, uh, this story is called Vendola, $20, and... Uh, 
its, uh, it's epigraph, which is not printed in the book, is uh, Il faut beaucoup de transactions dans la tête pour faire 20 dollars. It takes a lot of uh, transactions in your head to make $20. In the twilight of his last sliver of dream, Magloire saw 20 dollars, not as a single slip of green, but all the bills fan- fanned out in a diadem and glowing with an incandescent light, like a crown set on the head of Christ resurrected. Indeed, the dollar bills crowned his own head, but at the same time they appeared far away so that he could not reach or grasp them. In this slippery zone between sleep and waking, he often received counsel of his spirits, and now he believed that Eslige Wuz was promising him he might conquer such a sum in the course of a day, 20 U.S. dollars, too small an amount to resolve his difficulties, thus not so large as to be unattainable. Then there's a kind of uh, slow thing of um, scene setting. I'm going to skip part of that. But we're still with the same character. The bare-swept area of their yard climbed sharply up the jagged backside of Mont-du-Cap, On the high ground, propped on stones beneath a stand of bamboo, were two gas generators Magloire had taken for repair. He was trained as a mechanic, electrician, plumber, refrigerator repairman, could also drive trucks, guide tourists, pilot small boats, in one case all the way to Miami. But lately, no one could be found to purchase any of these skills. The two... Generators ran smoothly now, but their owners would not pay to recover them, so McGlower was simply holding them hostage. The situation reminded him of a story he had heard from the capital. Some Zanglando had summoned a man to shine their shoes, then kidnapped him when he was done, though the most they could raise for a ransom was $20. Vandola. Shaking off the thought of the kidnapping, he walked through the house, pulled on a shirt, came out onto the street. Through the alley that cut down to the waterfront, the rising sun blazed off the surface of the harbor. From the neighboring bar curled a stale odor of last night's frying. McGuire's stomach fisted. Squinting a little in the brilliance of the light, he walked through the alley to the edge of the breakwater and stood breathing in the clean salt air. Men called to each other from a couple of small boats going out to fish. Rope creaked against a makeshift mast as a sail bellied full and from behind him McGuire could hear the steady hollow thump of his mother's mortar. It was said that one should take ten deep breaths each day before the sea. Now in the in the Late 90s, I made a couple of trips to, uh, to Haiti with Robert Stone, who some of you may know as a novelist. Uh, he's somebody I admire tremendously as a writer. Um, for, uh, for Blanc, which in, in Haitian Creole means just anyone who's not Haitian, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, pigmentation. Traveling to Haiti is a, a, a different sort of pilgrimage than it is for Haitians who, who leave and go back and... Uh, uh, it's it's extremely powerful, at least in my case I can say that it is. You don't go there with just anybody, for one thing, uh, because, you know, you, you take the wrong person, yeah, neither one of you might come back. Um, but uh, I had some interesting times in, in, in Haiti with, with Bob Stone, and uh, I knew he'd write about it, and that didn't bother me, but he, it worried him. Um, he wrote a novel that was in part, I mean, I would say half of it is in part, uh, based on his experiences in Haiti, um, although in the end he represented it as uh, an imaginary place, as he had done before in, uh, in his book called A Flag for Sunrise, which makes up two Central American countries that sort of resembles the, the ones that really existed. He was fretful that I would feel like he was poaching, which I certainly wouldn't have done. I knew we'd never write the same thing anyway, but, but finally to soothe him I said, look, look Bob, it's okay, just make me a minor character in your book and I'll put you in mine. <laughs> I don't recognize myself in his book, but you know, uh, one of the things I've learned as a writer is 
Normally, they don't. It's when you didn't mean them at all that they sue. Dr. Oliver drifted to a halt in a public square before the cathedral, a madman staring bareheaded under the scorching noonday sun. This is Capaisian, Capaisian. I probably should have said that. Once there had been shade trees in this place, but those were plowed under in some renovation. Now there was nothing but bare flagstones and the statues of the national heroes, the metal ones looking as if they might melt. There were no people about on the square, though a few had pressed themselves into tiny pools of shadow under the lentils of the church across the way. In the southwest corner of the square was a new monument Dr. Oliver had not seen before, different style from the venerable statues, three curving husks of polished aluminum grouped together and standing about man high. When he approached, he saw there were inscriptions on the inner curves. The sculpture was arranged so that he had to step inside the grouping to try to read them. The effect was obscurely menacing, like standing inside some sort of Iron Maiden that had not been completely shot. Dr. Oliver did not feel well. He needed to take off his teardrop sunglasses to read, and the burst of reflected light worsened his headache, which might have been brought on by sun or by early stages of narcotic withdrawal. The inscriptions were in Creole, which he had trouble puzzling out. He was more functional in French. Gradually, he absorbed the idea that each silvery husk memorialized a martyr of the revolution who had died on this spot. Et Blonier gain mauvaise habitude, relais, révolution d'Haïti comme rebellion. It actually was not a rebellion, it was a revolution that created a new state, like the American Revolution. Two revolutions which created states where none had existed before. There's a big difference. Have to say it. Dr. Oliver recognized there are three names from the histories he had read. One had been burned at the stake, and the other two broken on the wheel. This information seemed to be borne to him by some sort of voiceover narration, but surely that could not be real. Yet there was a Creole phrase being repeated in an angry monotone: "Blanc, pagaille document, bam, blanc." And a person saying it, a long scarecrow who detached himself from a niche of shadow at the corner of a church and was walking toward Dr. Oliver in a jittery stride, obsessively repeating the words the doctor now understood to mean, foreigner, don't look at my documents. Blanc, pagade document, bam. Dr. Oliver put his sunglasses back on, but that did not make him feel any safer. He felt dizzy and sick and unsure of himself. Normally, this part of town was perfectly safe, but there were always exceptional days. The week before, an election had gone wrong somehow, and since then, demonstrators had sealed off the approaches to the town with burning barricades. Though those phenomena existed comfortably far away from the central square, the aggression hurling itself its, his way now seemed to partake of the same spirit. Dr. Oliver opened his dry mouth, found he could not frame a placating phrase in the right language. This is very embarrassing when it happens to you, right? Um, then someone else had put a hand under his elbow and was steering him gently away, and at the same time speaking to the other man with the calm fluency Dr. Oliver had been unable to say, okay, monsieur, nous parlez, nous parlez, problème, accès. They turned the corner. There was shade. Immediately, Dr. Oliver felt a little better. With his free hand, he checked the nearly empty pill bottle in his pants pocket. He was in the company of Charles Morgan, a white American like himself, known to the locals as Charlie Chapeau. Their soft tongues, I don't even have to say that. That's for print. Um, it explains the pronunciation of Charlie Chapeau. Um, you don't want to be out on this with no hat, Charlie Chapeau was telling him now. They passed the grill gateway of the Hotel International. Charlie's battered Montero was parked across the street, 
and in the heavy dust on the back window, someone had scrawled the name Magloire. An air conditioner rumbled in a window of a hotel restaurant, and Dr. Oliver automatically moved toward the door. But Charlie moved, nudged him past to the popular bar beside it, which catered to the less prosperous locals, had no air conditioning. You'll get pneumonia in that cold, Charlie said. Come in here first, he assisted Dr. Oliver when he tripped on the step into the popular bar, which was unusually stone empty. Charlie wrapped on a hatch in the side wall, and someone passed two bottles of beer through it, releasing a puff of frigid air before the hatch slapped shut. What's the good word, Dr. Oliver said. Charlie Chapeau released a dusty chuckle. We're not dead yet. He drank from his bottle of prestige and snapped a lighter to a Camilfo cigarette. Nuled menula, which means I learned this phrase from, I, I plagiarized this phrase from Edwige Notica, but I mean, people said it before her, but she was, uh, means we're ugly, but we're here. Have you been out of town? Not possible, monsieur. The soulevement still is up and running. Soulevement is a word for demonstration um, with machetes and burning tires in this case. At this, Dr. Oliver's withdrawal pangs got sharper. I thought those things were only supposed to last a day. Supposed to, Charlie said. There was no electricity in the bar, which was shadowy as a cave. Charlie stepped up to tip ash through the blazing doorway and took a quick look up and down the street. Full moon's coming. He said, they'll start the ceremonies on Mont Calvaire. That might shut it down if it was local, but word is those guys on the barricades came up from Port-au-Prince. This is actually a real situation uh, pursuant to uh, elections not getting finished in the year 2000. I always like to go to Haiti right after elections. It's usually quiet. Everybody's tired. This time they wouldn't be over. Who's running them? Charlie shrugged. There's a hundred stories. That guy who was after me on the square, Dr. Oliver began, he was, I don't know, more possessive than usual. Possessed was another word that came to him, as if the whole person was owned, invaded, by the phrase he kept repeating. There's some strange stuff swirling around today. Charlie leaned forward pushed his sunglasses up above the dust-crusted rim of his red bandana, exposing to Dr. Oliver his tired eyes. They killed La Reine d'Haïti, did you know that, in the Place Montaché. What? Place Montaché was a smaller square only a few blocks uphill from the cathedral. Nothing bad ever happened there. In daylight? Who? Charlie Chapeau was nodding slowly. I meant to tell you that. She may... That, Dr. Oliver knew, was the current word for Zenglando or bandits or occasionally lawless persons who might sometimes engage in political thuggery, abruptly materializing, then fading away. Those on the barricades were shime as well. The literal translation was chimera. They cut her heart out, Charlie added. Jesus, why? There was a flash behind the bar where a server had silently appeared, his eyes widening white in the shadows at what Charlie had said. Scare the bejabbers out of everybody, Charlie shrugged. He had known her, Dr. Oliver realized, this harmless mad woman who'd styled herself the Queen of Haiti and did the stroll from Place Montaché to the Boulevard de la Mer, capturing whomever she could in tight lassos of her crazy talk. I need her too. There's always a sort of big energy buildup, Charlie Chapeau was saying, between Pentecost and Trinity, and it releases in the ceremonies. Normally it should. A thing like this, though, it can, it can all start going in the wrong direction. I need to get out of here, Dr. Oliver said. The demonstrations had cut him off from the airport, which was probably out of service anyway. He was meant to have flown to the States three days before. Right, said Charlie, it's inconvenient for me, too. Dr. Oliver touched the bottle in his pocket. Two pills left, and why was he saving them? 
So there would be that much between him and the void. He resolved to speak about this to Charlie Chapeau, who was sometimes something of a fixer. Charles, I need to, a delicate matter, uh, refill a prescription. Charlie was looking at him slantwise for what? Uh, too much delicacy, and he would not be understood. Well, it's diluted. But I can substitute. Oxycontin, Percocet, even, or heroin would do. That's Charlie's line. Yes, replied Dr. Oliver, naked now and almost unashamed. It would. But Charlie Chapeau was shaking his head. There's coke around. There's even crack, believe it or not. But what you're after, it's, it's not obvious. At the hospital, maybe. He felt... Charlie Chapeau withdraw a little, though his body had not yet moved. You do the medical missions, right? So you know they never have enough painkillers for non-recreational users, Dr. Oliver thought, his shame bitter now. I've got a couple of cats to kill, Charlie said. I think you shouldn't be kicking around by yourself. Not today. McGuire is looking for you. Maybe he can help. Oh, said Dr. Oliver, remembering the name scrawled in the dust. It gave him a faintly reassuring sense of connectedness. I thought he was looking for you. Uh, I'm going to read just one more little part of this. Um, you can see the layout of the story. I mean, there's one person who wants to buy drugs, and there's another person who, uh, who wants to make $20 any possible way he can. And um, um, and uh, and there's a person in the middle who uh, sort of likes to help people, if possible. Uh, so I'm just going to read this uh, one more little scene. It's after a number of things have happened, and. Um, uh, well, Dr. Oliver has obtained an envelope, and he's happy, but he hasn't tried it yet. They meet, uh, I think I disguise this hotel, but it's uh, with a false name in the story, but it's, uh, I guess, you know, you're going to put this on the radio. I won't, I won't say the real name now either, but it's a nice hotel up, uh, up on the hill in uh, Cap Aïcien. It's got a long view, and if there's a, a, a serious Sulev Mall you can look at, uh, for miles and miles toward the airport and out to a Berrier Boutte and see the fires burning at night. It's very impressive. Uh, for If you're researching the Haitian Revolution, it's, it's doubly great because you can imagine that gives you an idea of what it might have been like back then. Um, so that's the scene. When Charlie Chapeau opened the envelope and curled his index finger into it, Dr. Oliver felt a stronger stab. Somebody's messing with my dope. Charlie Chapeau rubbed a generous amount of white powder between his thumb and forefinger. I don't know, he said, and dragged his finger through a drop of water on the table. A smear-like white paint appeared on the wood of the tabletop. I wouldn't run this up my nose. Charlie caught Oliver's eyes. Lime, I think. What, quicklime? No, no, they're not trying to hurt you. It's, it's like chalk, basically. They use it for whitewash. Charlie uh, closed the envelope and flicked it across the table like a paper football. What did you pay for it? 20 U.S. Right, said Charlie, kind of suspiciously cheap, don't you think? He looked out at the ring of, out of a ring of local light toward the fires on the barricades. I don't know, though. In 97, this is another true fact, I could have bought an assault rifle for that in the Capitol. $20. That was when they had just dismantled the army, and all those guys, you know, they would sell their guns for a ball of rice, basically. Everybody thought they were bad guys, but they were just poor people with a uniform. A lot of them. Ever wish you had? Dr. Oliver managed to ask from the depths of a chill now locked around his heart. Sometimes, yeah, Charlie said, but you know, if you've got one of those things, the odds go up, somebody will get killed with it. He turned his head back into the circle of lamplight. Don't feel so bad. You can try again tomorrow. Why not, Dr. Oliver said. Why not feel bad? 
What I love about this country is that magical thinking actually does work here. But it's gotta have it's gotta have a little something to work with, you see. Like McGuire, in better circumstances, he'd be a completely honest person. As it is, he has to cut a corner sometimes. The drums had grown louder and there was chanting now too. Charlie Chapeau turned his head into the wind that came constantly off the bay, flipped up his red bandana, knotted it tight to the nape of his neck. He's going to leave me, Dr. Oliver thought. Charlie leaned toward him across the table. Understand, McGuire wanted you to have what you wanted. His desire is for you to have what you need. And for him to have what he needs, well, somebody has to spend straw into gold. If the charm had worked like he wanted it to, you'd come out with the coin instead of a dried leaf, as it is. Standing, Charlie clapped Dr. Oliver on the shoulder. Thanks for dinner and the shower. And what the hell, it's only 20 bucks. Now, if you want to read any more of that, uh, if you want to find that out, it comes out, you can buy the book. All proceeds go to the benefit of the publisher. Not done yet? Not quite. I'm going to get Katya back up here in a minute. I'm going to sing a song poorly, and then she's going to sing a song well. Moïse de so prensa pour principe, ma pote l'opa qui est pour plein canari moi. Moïse de so prensa pour principe. Ma pote l'opa qui est pour plein canari moi. Gagne un chamois, un l'el défié. Gagne un lot là, un tarelé parfait toi. Si mon zip le voisinage, parlez-moi payé. Mais mon déwe, c'est pour yo et apoué. Moïse des eaux, prends ça pour principe. Ma pote l'opa qui est pour plein canari moi. Katia Gulis. sing outside of Haiti. It's just Haiti Sheri, you know, we love you and uh, we had to leave you to know all that you have done, all that you did for us. So, come on, everybody. <laughs> oh, Juliet. <laughs> okay, Munchkin. So, that's it. Okay. Um, there, there is a song, um, Actually, I didn't come to sing. But um, there is a song that uh, parents sing to their children. And it's called Tizoazo. Um, actually, it's called Elizo. But my mother used to sing, yeah, Elizo. Elizo, yeah, it, that song is about whatever you do. It's like a karma, you know, whatever you do to somebody just comes back to you. And it says, Pafemsa, pafemsa, Elizo. Di pafemsa, pafemsa, Elizo. Boy, I got a loud voice. Elizo, si ufemsa, Elizo, wa fem tu, Elizo, wa. Di Elizo, wa fem tu, Elizo. 
that song is, is, comes from uh, the stories, you know, my great-grandmother used to tell, and my mother and everybody. It's about a little boy who's coming home from school. And he looks up in this tree and sees this little bird. That's, as you can see, Juliette gets uh, really scary bedtime stories. But you know, yeah, bravo, bravo for the child. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I figured, you know, I tell her all these spooky stories from, from Haiti because, you know, if you can tell your kids stories or even show them movies about ladies with fins and who want their legs chopped off so that, or want their, what do you call them, mermaids who want their bottom half stuff so they can have legs and walk on land. If we can do that, then we can definitely tell a story about a little bird um, who gets, you know, who meets a very bad fate and, and he served to his mother because he just wanted to please his mother. And so he, you know, with a slingshot, just does that to the bird and then takes the bird home and starts plucking the feathers, you know, actually putting it in a hot water and preparing the bird for for cooking it. And once it was nice and brown, you know, he takes it to his mother on a plate and then she dies. Because the bird had warned the boy that whatever you do to me will happen to you too, but it happened to his mother. You like that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Okay. Tesa, no? No, I'm back up I'm something on call. Okay. Uh, you're very fluent in English, even though in Creole, even though you're very fast. So, so why don't we sit now? I feel like doing this. <laughs> Maybe the two of you can share this because we are recording this. So are there questions for either uh, There you are. For oh, either of our authors? Questions? Anyone? Questions? That's more. You can take that to school. Are you serious? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm a teacher. We never say no to anything. <laughs> this will work. Well, I, have, I have a question. Um, obviously, you're both uh, literary artists, and you've written your, your stories down. Can you talk a little bit about the oral tradition in, um, in Haiti of storytelling and story sharing? That question is for you. Uh, well, the thing, uh, the thing about that is that and these are stories passed down, like the one that I've said, passed down from generations, came from uh, Africa. You know, when they came down to Haiti in 1503, they brought their stories with them. And so because for a long time, illiteracy has been a problem in Haiti, so then the oral tradition is something that must thrive. And this is why I keep saying now that uh, the elderly must be included in the... Um, Re reconstruction, rebuilding Haiti better because without that tradition, if we lose those stories and they've got the storehouse of, of, of just treasures in their, in their minds that can only be transmitted through telling them verbally and if we lose that, you know, if we let them go without recording those stories or at least hearing them, they're gone. And this is why I make a point of telling my daughter these stories and freaking her out, and then she says, Mommy, that doesn't exist. You know, people can't fly at night. Sure they do. <laughs> oh, yeah, they do. They do. I, I can't really say much about the, the oral tradition, except that I do know it's where a, a lot of the history, real history, resides. But, but, uh, but the language itself, Creole, is an extraordinary language. It's, uh, it's rich, fertile, um, like the English of Shakespeare, it's, it's still in process, taking in new words, um, refining its own grammar, um, all the kind of formal rigidity of French and the things about French that, that you don't like if you had to uh, um, learn it in school ever, which less and less people do. I mean, I'm very fond of French too, but, but Creole's different. They take all that away. And um, it's, it's a... Uh, repurpose speech, I might say, um, and uh, in an extraordinarily creative way. Yeah, you know, Creole is so important. I have, uh, I went to Haiti, like you say, you have to be careful who you go to Haiti, you know, who you take with you. But yeah, this is, feel as well. yeah, <laughs> no, it's true, because, the, you know, when I, when I go to Haiti, like, I haven't been in a few months, and I'm just crazy. I need to go and plant my feet on the ground 
without shoes. And then when you do that, when I do that, I feel this thing reach up from the ground and just kind of refuels me, and, and I need that. But to give you an example of how powerful Creole is, I went to Haiti with my cousin. Now you got to be careful you take with you, you know, cousins, sisters. Um, so I went down there with my cousin, and he came back with malaria, right? And every time I go to Haiti, I'm fine. I don't take those shots, nothing. And I told him, I said, you see, that's for speaking all that English around the mosquitoes. Because they didn't get me. Because, you know, he kept speaking English and wearing all those little spray to deet. And the mosquitoes like, oh, yum. You know, and... <laughs> so no speaking English in front of the Haitian mosquitoes because they'll bite you. They're like, blah, foreigner. Sting, sting, sting. Yes? Yeah, hello. Thoroughly enjoyed, and I was um, browsing the collection um, of the stories as you were reading in your wonderful, impromptu musical performance. Um, I have a question for you, um, Mr. Bell. Um, been trying to catch up with you for quite some time to get you to autograph a copy of uh, the biography on uh, Trusant Louverture. And, um, but what I want to share with you is that I thoroughly enjoyed that. thought it was extremely, you know, powerful and poignant. But one thing I'm always curious about is when any – I've traveled extensively in Africa and everything else, and I've always come across Europeans and, and white American folk in different places where it's totally surrounded by um, African folk, black folk, usually kind of impoverished. So what has touched you or motivated you to devote so much time to – right not only about Haiti but of race and things in reference to African black people. I'm just always curious about that just as on an um, intellectual and aesthetic level too because I always find there's always a genuine humanistic motivation on one side because in Africa I came across a gentleman, he was there to import djembe drums and he had got with a co-op that was paying a fair wage and then as I was in Senegal going across to the Pink Lake, I met a group of Italians, and they were simply there to buy up all the water rights in the country. So I just want to ask you, um, sometimes it's altruistic and, and totally humanistic and beautiful, and other aspects when I've come across white folks involved in impoverished African situations, it's been exploitive. So I want to get your take on that and share with me what, what is your motivation. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to give you three answers, but they won't be uh, tremendously long. Uh, when I started this project, which was uh, uh, back in the middle 1980s, um, of writing about Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution, I, if I'd been asked that then, I would have said, I think it's important for white people to have black heroes, and I still believe that. Um, that's kind of where I began. Um, Toussaint... Toussaint Louverture is one of the most amazing people who ever walked the earth. And uh, that's pretty much where I started. Um, oh, I've forgotten. Uh, I forgot what my second answer was going to be. I'm going to have to skip to the third. Uh, <laughs> damn, I was all organized. Well, the third answer is, and this is something that came to me. Oh, no, the, uh, here's, here's the second answer. It's... Uh, um, uh, I didn't realize this was a factor in my interest in this Haitian story until I was halfway through writing it. You know, that's, that means about ten years, really. Um, but it was—it would have been totally obvious to anyone else. I grew up in the in the rural South, and uh, I was raised in part by, by black people. Black people were around me all the time on unequal terms, but but there was intimacy. I was close to them, and. Uh, and when I grew up, the whole world changed, and, and I lost that. We all lost that. And in some ways, we needed to lose it because there were lots of things about it that were not good. Um, but nevertheless, the good parts of that I have retained. And then the, the third answer, now I can do the third answer, uh, is uh, that more lately I've come to understand something that we all know from the scientists tell us now, that uh, uh, race is an illusion. And we're all Africans. Human life began in Africa, 
and uh, human culture began in Africa, and it's involved in many different ways since. But there's something in the original racine uh, sayo, zotre sayo, the roots. And uh, this is hard to zotre doesn't sound ugly the way it will in English, but it's uh, in, entrails, the viscera, uh, a very important concept in Haiti. And that's that's who we are beneath our brains. Um, uh, it's it's part of all of us. Katya, with your book, um, <clears throat> I thought it was interesting the building of the animosity between um, the sister who went to the states and the one who remained back, and just kind of the sentiment that um, you know, why don't you want more versus why do you undervalue what I have? And I'm just curious, when you visit <clears throat> or just your experience with people, is that kind of a sentiment that you see often with uh, families that return to visit families that stayed behind? Gosh, yes. We have the New York people. This is what we call the entire United States. <laughs> Just New York. Um, we have the New York people, and then we have the Haiti people. As a matter of fact, they've nicknamed the New York people diaspora, you know, diaspora, diaspora. And, uh, you know, you come like, ah, oh, I'm a diaspora. Here comes the jazz. And, you, you know, when I go to Haiti, I try, you know, not to be the diaspora. Because I always wear my husband's pants, some old shirt, and tie my hair, you know. As a matter of fact, it worked so well one day that um, the U.N. truck almost ran me down. I was like, yeah, I've mastered it. Um, <laughs> I was like, what? Um, yeah, so, you know, we're the, the Jaspola, the Jas people, when you go to Haiti and somebody, and then your family members don't have much, you know, but they're doing the best. They can. So there's a vinyl tablecloth hanging for a curtain every few inches as a vinyl tablecloth. And, and certain people would be just put off by that, like, oh, don't you, don't you know how things are done? But people have their own way. And if you, somebody's out there selling fried food to the taxi drivers, that's happiness. You know, would you like to come here and get stuck with a mortgage? Um, or um, get up early and, I don't know. You know, people, certain people are just, people are happy with their lives. And we should not go and tell them, like in my story, what are you doing? You're, you're nothing, basically. You're nothing. And this is why the character, am I supposed to say all this? Um, oh, should I tell them? Um, oh, God, you probably know it already. Uh, so, yeah, so this lady, you know, she's doing so well and decides, you know what, I'm going to get my elderly mother and bring her to the United States. What, what happens is that somebody said this to me, moving somebody who's 65 or 70 years old, that's like moving a tree. So, oh, seriously, I mean, I'm a pretty good gardener, but I'm not moving a, I'm sorry, I am a good gardener, um, a 65-year-old tree. Because unless you get the entire root ball, there's a chance that, that tree's not going to make it. And by the entire root ball, you, you have to get every little tendril, every little bit of that tree in order for it to possibly be successful. So if I've got somebody who's been living in Haiti for 70 years, happy to just go about life the way she wants to or he wants to, who am I to say? oh, things are so much better in New York. You need to come here. And what happens to some people, and I've seen it happen, and you say, usually we put them in these apartments, these apartments high above the earth, high above ground. So you have people who are used to walking on the, on the land, so now they're living on the 10th floor, and all you see is sky. All you see is sky. And people at that age... Like, you know what, forget about this. I, I know, you know there was a lady, she, just, she was just tired. She said, you know what, I'm just going to die. And she did. I don't mean to cheer you up so much. <laughs> there was, I, don't, I kind of have two questions that maybe I can push into one because I don't really understand exactly how to ask either of them. But this is Haiti Noir's the book, and maybe this is more of a question for the editor, but the, could you talk a little bit more about n the way that the noir acts 
for this for you? And also, maybe, I don't know, can this work with uh, the magical thinking that you talk about? And also, um, in both of your stories, as far as, you know, uh, like mythology of New York and then the mythology of Haiti as well. How do how does noir and, and I guess magical thinking fit for both of you? Well, I'll, I'll answer the first part of the question about the, the book, its publication, and then I'll give a hard part to Katya. Uh, the there's a the noir series is uh, is basically all the other books in it, as best I understand, are are, are the contributors are mostly mystery writers. The only one I'm really familiar with is uh, is uh, Baltimore Noir, which was edited, I think, by Laura Lipman, who's a, you know probably the preeminent local mystery writer right now, and had a lot of other Baltimore or what DC mystery writers contribute stuff to it, and that's that's the concept. Um, they gave it to uh, they th- uh, the publishers who were sort of interesting folks thought it would be cool if they had Edwige Donacat do one for Haiti. It, it must have occurred to them that immediately you've got this giant pun, you know, because noir it means something in terms of cinema and a certain kind of tone, you know, that we all understand in the United States. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a certain kind of uh, doer melodrama. Um, at the same time, it literally does mean black, and when you when you put that word with Haiti, you've got you know blackness and a lot of other ramifications that are right there. Um, meanwhile, most of the people who were, in fact, all of them, as far as far as I know, who were who were contributed to commission, uh, uh, who were co- commissioned to contribute to this book, were not mystery writers. That. Are you a mystery writer? No. No, I don't think there's a, a single... I mean, in fact, there there's a, millions of interesting Haitian writers who do all kinds of things. But mystery writers, I wouldn't say... I don't even really know any. So uh, everybody had this kind of queer assignment to do something that was, you know, noirish in the, in the conventional Raymond Chandler sense. And I think people had fun with it. Um, and I, I know I was pleased, as one of the two honorary Haitians in the book, me and Mark Kurlansky, I was delighted with the assignment because I had all these little pieces of a story. I just needed, you know, I needed Ed Weiss to ask me to write it. Um, and I think I'll let you take the other half of the question. I might say some stuff about what I meant by the thing that, but I'd rather hear you. Okay, all right. Uh, man, we had a little... Um, well, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I talked, well, I didn't talk to Edwidge. She emailed and said, hey, Katia, you know, because I've worked with her before. And said, do you have any uh, noir stories? I said, yeah, sure. So I ran to the Barnes & Noble. <laughs> I was like, what the heck is that? So <laughs> I always say, sure, yeah, of course, tons of them. So I, I ran to the Barnes & Noble on uh, St. Paul, and the only thing on the shelf was Baltimore Noir. Oh. And I read it very quickly. And that's how I became a mystery writer. <laughs> and that's, and uh, that was a great thing that he got in there. And I have to tell you, I'm so honored to be, you know, that you and I'm so honored. Ah, yeah, truly. Well, uh, I will say that that I agreed to do this event because I have a hard time saying no. And um, after I'd agreed to do it, I thought I would, uh, well, when it began to get pretty near, I thought, oh, I wonder who else is going to be on this gig. I remember there was somebody. And uh, so I, I went and, and, and looked up Katia Ulysse, and not knowing that, that, I, that I actually was acquainted with her sister, who's, uh, who's uh, almost as good a singer as she is. <laughs> But, uh, but but a professional too, uh, so I thought, damn, this is lucky. I really like that story. That's <laughs> uh, one of the best ones in the book, and I think in part because, uh, you know, she did the the assignment the same way I did the assignment, but at the same time, there's a lot more in that story than just the assignment. Okay, um, I want to thank everybody for coming, and I also want to add to that last question, even though I'm just starting to learn about Haiti and learning and 
about things literary in Haiti. I kind of think everything is a mystery. Nothing is ever straightforward <laughs> in terms of what I've learned. So I think it, it's kind of a maybe natural outcropping of, of the island and the people and the culture. Um, so I just want to remind everybody to buy a book and get it signed. And thank everybody for coming out. <laughs>